We're such a blessed church, don't you think? So many wonderful people willing to use their gifts and talents. And here's a good thing. And more and more people are coming our way. And I don't know how you take to this experience, but if you go into the lobby on Sundays, you'll see a lot of people you don't know. So I must tell you, initially, that um, makes me uncomfortable. I should know people. This is my church. But no, no, no. It's a great thing. You want your church to grow and be attracting folks. And the Lord is really using our pastor to bring in folks during the most disadvantageous time. We're still in the midst of COVID, and yet people are coming our way by the droves, and we see it reflected not just in our worship services, both of them on Sunday, but in our iConnect classes and other times as well. So we had our, I think it was, John Mark, was it our second Discovery Luncheon? Uh, this past and how many new people joined or came this past Sunday so 40 family units joined just this past Sunday at the luncheon so this is this is just a wonderful thing, and I know we're not taking it lightly. Do you know what happens when that sort of thing happens? The enemy turns up the burner. That's what happens. And he just tries in different ways to distract us and disrupt us. So we really ought to be on our guard these days more than ever to make sure we preserve the unity of the body, the harmony in the body of Christ, love one another, support one another, Pray for our pastor and staff and all the good, and thank God for all the good things that are, are happening. Um, I love Sagemont Church because it's a place in which you can feel loved. You can have the experience of love. No, not romantic love, but uh, the love uh, of, uh, of brothers and sisters. And that's a good feeling. It makes you actually psychologically well. If you th in fact, if you don't think that's true, what I just told you has been substantiated by scientific study. For instance, in 2019, at Penn State University, researchers conducted two studies, and they confirmed that people who report more experiences of feeling loved also had significantly higher levels of psychological well-being. Furthermore, they determined that people who reported more frequent feelings of being loved tended to have higher extroversion scores. That's a good thing. They had energy. They were outgoing. They had a positive uh, outlook on life in comparison to those people who reported fewer uh, experiences of feeling loved who ranked higher on something called the neuroticism scale. So if you want to avoid going crazy, uh, ask God to send people your way who will love on you. It just means something. Now I know 
a number of folks, even here, did not grow up with a nurturing kind of developmental experience and maybe with a sparsity of feelings of love. I understand that, uh, but can you understand this? Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I, I heard that somewhere. Now, I know uh, it's rather simplistic for me to think, just reciting the words of that well-known song, are sufficient to help you, if you feel unloved and unlovely, to feel loved. Understand that. But not only do I understand that, so too does Almighty God. He wants us, those of us who know him, to have the experience of being loved by him. But he knows we need help because many of us come from backgrounds where there was the absence of that kind of nurture and affection. And so to help us, I think God gave us at least one entire book of the Bible to demonstrate to us clearly his unconditional love. And it's that book we're going to peer into over the next few weeks so as to be persuaded by the love of God. And the book is Hosea, the theme of which we could say is God's unfailing love for even unfaithful people. Now, that's everyone here tonight. All of us are not as faithful to Almighty God as we ought to be, and therefore are prone to think we have forfeited his love. The book of Hosea will persuade us once and for all that is not the case. It's not even possible to forfeit the by definition, unconditional love of God. So we're going to look into this book written by a man named Hosea. Uh, in fact, he wrote this approximately 2,700 years ago. We don't know much about him. In fact, Hosea is not mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible except this book, uh, uh, entitled by his name, Hosea. He was a young minister. He was called into the ministry as a prophet and served in that role for about 40 years. That's what we know about him, not much more. We do know he's one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, that's a term theologians use to categorize different books of the Bible. So in the Old Testament, some books are penned by major prophets. Others are said to have been penned by minor prophets. I think the terminology is a little unfortunate because we may be prone to think that Hosea, uh, considered to be a minor prophet, doesn't have much of significance to say. That's not what it means. A major prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is simply referred to as a major prophet due to the length of the recorded prophecy. That's all there is to it. Hosea's prophecy is much shorter than that of the major prophets, so he is one of the minor prophets. But as you will see as we go through this book, Hosea is a minor prophet 
with a major message. I think it's one of the most wonderful books in all of Scripture. Hosea's name means the Lord saves. And you'll see names in this book are quite significant, particularly the names of Hosea's children to whom we'll be introduced this evening. The people of Israel at this time were really not listening to the words of the prophets, and so their names alone would get their attention. The people of Israel, rebellious as they were, needed to be reminded, even by Hosea's name, it's the Lord who saves. It's nobody else. And so his name is a wonderful sermon in and of itself. By the way, the Hebrew root word for uh, Hosea or Hosea is the same one for Yeshua. And whose name do you think that is? That's Jesus, you see. So he is a, we can say, a type, a uh, foreshadowing of the ultimate uh, Savior. And so as I mentioned, Hosea's writing is to his wayward uh, countrymen. And here is a, a very simple outline of the book. It's uh, a bit flawed because it's so simple, but it'll help you get a handle on the book. Uh, chapters 1 to 3 are about an unfaithful wife. You'll see her name is Gomer and a faithful husband, uh, and that's Hosea. And then chapters 4 to 14, I think we could say, are about an unfaithful nation, that's Israel, and a faithful God. Well, let's get into the text. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who are they? Kings of Judah. And also during the days of Jeroboam, who's he? He's the son of Joash. He's not a king of Judah, according to the text. He's the king of Israel. So this one verse is meant to locate the book in a space-time dimension. It's taking place in Israel, and it's taking place during the reigns of these various kings. Some are kings of Israel, some kings of Judah. Now, what's that all about? At this time, Israel was a divided monarchy. When Solomon died, his son took over and was a mess and caused a mess. In fact, his very poor and unwise decisions led to division in uh, Israel. So 10 tribes split there in the north. Two tribes split from the 10 northern tribes there in the south. So the two southern tribes are, came to be known as Judah, the 10 northern tribes as Israel. Now they're all Israel, but they were termed differently. So here uh, you see certain of the kings of the 10 northern tribes identified, and one king of the two southern tribes. Now, Isaiah lived in a day when there was another prophet. Isaiah was that prophet. Isaiah's words were primarily directed to Judah, the two southern tribes, whereas Hosea's words were primarily directed to Israel, the 10 tribes in the north. Now, Hosea lived in a time much like ours. The government 
first under the leadership of a Jeroboam was doing pretty good. But uh, as soon upon his death, the government became quite unstable. Uh, it got really bad. Uh, there was upheaval and uncertainty and instability and anarchy. Boy, are we talking about ancient Israel or modern-day America? Good night. That sounds like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington to me, for crying out loud. This is a little encouraging to me in a weird way because the sinfulness of man, man's uh, anti-God tendencies are not new nor unique to our day. You, they have reared their ugly head in every generation because human nature has been the same. So to divine nature, God remains on the throne. That's a good thing. And in that day, there seemed to have been two, you might say, political parties, uh, principal political parties, just like in our day. One political party were in favor, an with a, uh, uh, in favor of an alliance with an empire to the north of Israel called Assyria, quite powerful. The other political party said, oh no, uh, that's not the group we ought to be in partnership with. Let's enter into partnership with another powerful empire in the day, Egypt to the south. And as a result, they hit heads. In some cases, one of the parties was in power and had influence. In other cases, the other party took over and had power and was influential. And so you see this really mirrors our two-party situation today. The prophets of God in that day, though they may have had a preference for one party over the other, pretty much kept the main thing the main thing. They considered both parties to be rather unfaithful to Almighty God, and so their messages were to both. Get it together. Submit to the king above all kings. I hope we don't get distracted by the things of the day from what our main calling is. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, you can be politically involved, astute, active, and informed. I understand that. But be careful that you don't let political matters distract you nor from nor compromise your testimony about the king of kings. Because members of both parties are sorely in need of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So you will see Hosea kept the main thing the main thing. Now that was the political situation in that day, similar to ours, and the religious or spiritual situation may be painfully similar to ours as well. Many Israelites in that day uh, were guilty of an amalgamation of aspects of worship of the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they tried to bring those together with worship of Canaanite gods as well. You can't do it. Why? Because the true God loves us too much to share us with another. In fact, when we give ourselves to another in a spiritual sense, God oftentimes refers to us as harlots, spiritually unfaithful adulterers. So that was the spiritual situation in that day. 
Now the Lord, being on top of things, knowing what's going on, seated on the throne and sovereign, intervenes. And he intervenes, as he typically does, through people who are his own. So he has a mission for Hosea that is nothing short of overwhelmingly hard to understand. God tells Hosea, this young minister, to do something odd, to say the least. Here's what he tells him in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry. Go get you a lady of the night. That's what God said. And not only that, have, through her, children of harlotry. Meaning the kids born from this relationship, Hosea being now the husband of a prostitute, uh, the children would be affected. That's the way it is. It's a family system. And the family can be quite dysfunctional when you have this kind of situation. So the kids were victimized or affected by the harlotry of their mom, hence would be referred to as children of harlotry. What's this all about? Well, the Lord told Isaiah, you see, the whole land commits flagrant harlotry of a spiritual kind, namely forsaking the Lord. And so if Hosea is undoubtedly wondering, God, what are you up to? If others are wondering this, God could say, don't be so repulsed. Good night. Your whole nation is characterized by a harlotry, a prostituting of yourselves in a spiritual way. So please imagine this. Uh, God tells this guy new to the ministry who, like all new ministers, is quite idealistic about the nature of his ministry. And no new minister has any idea what it's going to cost. Every one of us say, oh, God, use me greatly. And God says, I'm glad to, but you don't know what it's going to cost. And so he's just getting started, and God tells him to marry a prostitute. That's what it says. Now, to soften the effect of this, some would say, well, when Hosea actually took this woman, this prostitute, to be his wife, she was not yet a prostitute, but that later she committed infidelity and took on partners outside the marriage and so what God is essentially and I'm one of those who holds to that point of view but let's not fight over this okay we got other things to fight about this is not one of them uh, so in fact this would not be contrary to God's uh, previous statements about the nature of marriage uh, and so what this would mean is God anticipating all things, seeing the end from the beginning, essentially was telling Hosea, Hosea, I want you to marry. And you need to know in advance, the one you marry is going to be unfaithful to you. So what in the world is going through Hosea's mind at this particular time? And what are the people thinking? How could this young minister take to himself a woman like this? And so this juxtaposition doesn't seem to work. A prophet and a prostitute, they're not supposed to go together. In fact, that could be actually the title for this entire book, A Prophet and a Prostitute. Doesn't make sense. 
And thinking this, the people might have gone to to the Lord and they might have said, this is so inappropriate, this bond between prophet and prostitute. And I could almost hear God say, oh yeah, that's the same bond I have with you. That's the point of the book. This is the whole point of the book. It's as if God's saying, you refuse to listen to the words of my prophets and therefore I'll portray something through the prophets. Hosea is like on stage. It's theater unfolding. And Hosea is playing the role of almighty God. And God is saying, you're repulsed by Hosea's bond to a prostitute. Now you know how I feel because I took you and you got off to a good start and soon became unfaithful to me. What you see, you refuse to hear from Hosea. What you see in his life and his marriage, take a look at what my marriage is like to you. You see, God married in effect ancient Israel. He entered into a covenant with her. The covenant was like unto marriage. But Israel soon became a harlot committing repeated acts of spiritual adultery. In other words, God was married to an unworthy, unfaithful partner who refused to see it. And so God obligated her to see it in the depiction of this adulterous relationship in Hosea's marriage to his unfaithful partner. So God is putting his marriage to Israel on display through Hosea's marriage to a prostitute. And in so doing, God is saying uh, to the people, look what you have done to my marriage. It's astounding that transcendent deity, the great beyond, would accommodate himself to a relationship we can all relate to. We could understand. It's as if God is saying, you see what's become of Hosea's marriage because of the unfaithfulness of his wife? Are you getting a sense of what you've done to our marriage? You've been unfaithful to me. How angry, how hateful, how bitter God must have become. No. This, is, this whole book is so counterintuitive. We would expect God to be that way, but you don't see it. In fact, he spoke to his wayward partner, Israel, on many occasions to bring her back into right relationship with him. He did so through all of his writing prophets. The people ignored every single one, however. And so this intensely, unconditionally loving God sends his, for now, last message to Israel before they're going to be attacked by that powerful nation in the north, Assyria, and carried off into bondage. He wants to give Israel a chance to repent, and he's assisting her. No, not out of anger, hatred. He's assisting Israel through his prophet Hosea and Hosea's marriage, a picture of Israel's unfaithful weddedness to Almighty God. And it's just as Hosea was to take this unfaithful woman as his wife, 
He was to do it as a representation of Israel, God's unfaithful wife. So God's heart towards Israel, as you will see, is not hardened. In fact, his heart is broken. Are you a child of the king? Uh, have you drifted? We're prone to do it, even as believers. It's really important for you to know God's heart is not hardened to you. His heart is broken because of you. He sees you to be his betrothed, his bride. He yearns for you to come back into intimacy and relationship with him. And so God is not merely a judge. Do you see him that way? Those of us as believers who see God only as big and omnipotent and a judge, I don't know. We might have had a dad like that. I don't know. But God is the perfect dad none of us have ever had. So he's not merely a judge whose laws have been broken. He's a partner in marriage whose heart has been broken. Just as Hosea's must have been. And so Israel did not merely violate God's law. She violated God's love. So to you and I when we sin against him. And so in this living parable of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful woman, God is revealing his marriage to unfaithful Israel. Can you imagine the hurt Hosea must have felt when he became aware of his wife's unfaithfulness? Well, through Hosea, God is saying, that's what I feel. That's what he's saying. And so God then did what, uh, Hosea did what God told him to do. He went and he took Gomer, that's the name of this lady. She's the daughter of Diblaim, that means raisin cakes. What's that all about? Raisin cakes, which taste really good, were often part of Canaanite pagan worship. That's his name. And they birthed their first child together, a son. So we read in verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I'll punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jezreel means God will scatter. Remember I told you the names mean something? The names are encapsulated sermons because Israel refused to listen to the words of the prophets. So every time someone came upon Jezreel, what's your name? Jezreel. <gasps> they will get a prediction of what God's going to do. He's going to scatter them. And this was literally historically fulfilled in around 722 B.C. when that powerful nation empire to the north, Assyria, came into Israel and carried off the wayward Israelites into bondage. They deported them. It was an Assyrian strategy. It really worked. They took all of these Israelites captive and dispersed them around the nations of the world so they could never get together in a unified assault on the Assyrian Empire. They literally became this nation under God, became disenfranchised and scattered. They became Jezreel, you see. And we read in verse 5, on that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Jezreel is not just the name of the son born to uh, Hosea and Gomer. It also came to be uh, the name of a pretty centrally located famous valley in Israel to which I think some of you have been. Here's a, 
what it looks like. It's quite beautiful. I've been there, so have many of you. It's a real place. I wanted you to see this because you see that kind of brown plateau? It's a hill. Uh, It's called Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. In Hebrew, Har-Mageddon. Put it together, Armageddon. That's the site of the final battle, Armageddon in the Jezreel uh, Valley. And so we read in verse six, uh, then she conceived again. She was fertile. She conceived again, gave birth to a daughter this time. And the Lord said to him, well, you name her Lo Ruhamah, for I'll no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Their second child was a daughter. God picked the name. Ruhamah means mercy. If you put the two-letter word before it, lo, lo cancels out what follows it. Lo negates what follows. Lo means no in Hebrew. Lo Ruhamah means no mercy. And that's the name of the child. Imagine this uh, Kid grows up and going around in Israel, and people say, hi, you're so pretty. What's your name? No mercy. Well, that, they're not listening to Isaiah. They're not listening to Hosea. But just that name would get their attention whenever it was uh, uttered. Now, folks, it's possible, I think probable, that this second child was not fathered by Hosea. I, I think there's a likelihood that this second child was fathered uh, by someone else through Gomer who was at this point wandering away from home. Now, at this point, Israel in the north, the 10 northern tribes would be experiencing the consequences of their departure from God. But they would still remember the two tribes in the south, Judah, not yet having um, fallen into such rebellion. And so we read now, pertaining to those tribes, verse 7, yet I, I, I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them, not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. So Judah is given by a a God a grand opportunity not to go the way of Israel in the north. But she doesn't do too good. 136 years after the Assyrian invasion and 722 in around 586, here come the Babylonians. And they did the same thing to the two southern tribes that the Assyrians did to the two northern tribes. It's a terrible thing, but I would like to highlight a very important word in this verse, which opens up the windows of hope in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness and our own. It's this little three-letter word, yet. I love it. You see it at the beginning, yet I will have compassion. People, all people are prone to go astray and thereby suffer the consequences of their rebellion. In Israel's case, the Assyrians. In Judah's case, the Babylonians. Yet I will have compassion. Folks, this is the irrational, incomprehensible, never-ending, astounding, counterintuitive, unconditional love of Almighty God. It's very important that you get this with reference to Israel because as with Israel, so too with us. 
If you think God dumped Israel, then you're in trouble because he may dump you next. I don't think you want that to happen. Therefore, I hope you see God's ongoing plan for Israel in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. And he says, I'll deliver her, but not through human wit or wisdom. No, he won't deliver Israel through their bows, their swords, their battles, horses, horsemen. He'll deliver Israel supernaturally. That's what he will do. And the text goes on. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, in that day, a baby could be on the breast till, man, sometimes age three or later. Whoa, think about that. And when the baby was weaned, uh, there was a big party. I could understand why the celebration. Can you imagine carrying around this critter for three years? Well, anyway, Lo-Ruhamah is weaned, and... The mama, Gomer, conceives and now gives birth to a third child, another son. I also think this one is likely uh, not the product of the bond with Hosea and Gomer. I think this might be one of Gomer's suitors who's the father. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami. Once again, Lo means no. Ami means people, the people. Lo-Ami, you're not my people. Hi, what's your name, little cutie? Lo Ami. <gasps> Perhaps the people of God would realize they're acting like they're not the people of God. And when you act like you're not the people of God, you don't get the benefits and privileges of being the people of God. That's what happens. And so that's not a reflection of God's hardened heart. That's a reflection of Israel's hardened heart or yours or mind. His heart, God's heart, even with regard to his unfaithful people is reflected here in verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be future. It will be said to them, oh no, you are the sons of the living God. Israel's rebellion and alienation from God is temporary. Temporary. Hmm. We speak sometimes about replacement theology. It makes really good sense to me. But from the scripture, apart from the scriptures, I would believe in it. Because when I look to what my people have done, the most spiritually privileged people on earth, and yet we've squandered it. It would make perfect sense for God to say, I'm done with you, and now I'm going to work out my plan through the church. The church has replaced Israel. Makes perfect sense to me, except it flies in the face of books like Hosea. <laughs> this is the counterintuitive, irrational, inexplicable, unconditional love of Almighty God. If you're wrong about Israel, you'll never be secure in Christ. Because if Israel's sin finally got to the point where her sin uh, surpassed God's grace, when will your sin surpass his grace? You see, the jeopardy you put yourself in if you hold to that replacement theology. Some people call it supersessionism. Israel has been superseded by the church. Now the church is 
God's people under the magnificent new covenant. Don't get me wrong, but what we have is not subtraction, dump Israel and replace the church. No, no, no. We have addition. We have members of the church grafted in to the rich root of the, added to the rich root of the Jewish olive tree. Now, why do I keep harping this? Well, because I'm Jewish. That's why. That's true. But the real truth is, folks, I'm not making this stuff up. You just read, look here. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, do you see that magnificent word yet again? You saw it in verse 7, now you see it again in verse 10. Yet, in spite of this terrible uh, rebellion by Israel, bringing upon her to this very day severe consequences, yet one day the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Six million Jews perished in the Holocaust. Overwhelming. But you know what is maybe even more overwhelming? Six million survived the Holocaust. Could you please explain that to me? How, how does that happen? A Nazi Germany was a very powerful, uh, militarily strong, brilliant, industrialized society. The Jews had nothing, no land, no nothing. How do six million survive so that they end up in a reconstituted modern state of Israel, the pop Jewish population of which now is about, oh, eight or nine million. There are about, I think, 15 million Jews in the world today. How did that happen? How did we, how did we escape the gas chambers and all this stuff at the hands of a very powerful nation, Nazi Germany? Well, not by bow, not by spear, not by armies, just as it says here, but by the supernatural intervention of God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you're not my people, it'll be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Folks, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, so that tells me that's still a future reality yet to come to Israel. By the way, the last time I checked in the book of Revelation, it's sort of fulfilled, right? Uh, I mean, at the least those 144,000 that you read about. Now, I mean no disrespect, but they are not Jehovah's Witnesses, as some claim. It says specifically there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 12 times 12,000 equals 144,000. Thousand. That tells me God's not through with the Jews yet, and he'll never, ever, therefore, be through with you as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. It isn't about Israel. It's about the character of God. Listen, folks. Either his grace is greater than all our sin or our faith is in vain. Now, this final verse says something even Better, Hebrews, uh, Hosea chapter one, verse 11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel, remember they're a divided kingdom. They're at odds with one another. Now they're mentioned together. They will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader. They won't have kings of the north, kings of the south. They'll have one leader. I think the ultimate one is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And they will go up from the land for great will be 
the day of Jezreel. That's future. You know what this tells me? Though we be unfaithful, we are. God remains faithful. Oh, God, I can't believe it. Read Hosea. Though Gomer was unfaithful and broke the heart of her faithful husband, still Hosea pursued her. You will see more if the Lord lets us get back together next week about the sacrificial pursuit of Gomer on the part of Hosea. He redeemed her from the auction block. There she is for everyone to gawk at so as to purchase her. And Hosea makes the purchase price. But that's what happened with us. Our heavenly husband, to whom we are often unfaithful, has purchased us from the auction block, redeemed us with what price? Blood, as of the only begotten, a son of God. Folks, if you're really struggling, oh, Lord Jesus, can you really forgive me? Can you be faithful to me, though I be unfaithful? Can you ever love me again, I who have gone astray? Please make Hosea your book. Read it. It's for you in particular. Here is God's grace, greater than all our sin. As he was with Israel, he is with you, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And because he lives, Noe, thank you so much for leading us. We can face tomorrow. We slip, we slide, we go astray. We commit acts of spiritual harlotry. But because God, the consistent, unchangeable God, our heavenly husband lives, we can face tomorrow. We can see that his heart is not hardened against us, though we perhaps have hardened our hearts against him. It's more like a broken heart. Has yours ever been broken by unrequited love? A partner you've loved who's been unfaithful to you? Hosea is your book. Because God is saying, me too. That's how he is towards us. Not a clenched fist, open arms. Come home, come home. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Oh God, I need help. Hosea. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us in inexplicable ways, and that's because we don't see really any loveliness in us. But as with Hosea's love for his unattractive wife, Gomer, so too you love us in spite of us. It's a love that emanates from your choice, just as it did from Hosea. And it has nothing to do with our ability to evoke your love or forfeit it. Oh, God, help us to get it as we uh, dig deep into the book of Hosea. Jesus loves me. This I know 
because the book of Hosea tells me so. And I pray, oh God, if there be even one who's not yet been introduced into a marvelous, well, it's kind of like a marital relationship with you, I pray that one would think about the possibility even tonight, the possibility of saying, oh God, in a way I kind of hear your proposal, come to me, I'll make you mine. I'll birth new life in you. I'll cast all your sins behind my back. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, God, thank you. That no matter what happens to us, because you live as our faithful, heavenly husband, we can face tomorrow. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.